0: The following is a member of the Growler Media Podcast Network. Find out more at growlermedia.com. Call me
1: Snake.
2: Escape from New York Minute, where we celebrate and analyze the dystopian classic one minute at a time. I'm Eric Deutsch.
1: And I'm Molly Balin.
2: And joining us a third and final time this week from Open the Podcast Doors, Hal, a 2001 podcast, Chris Frayne.
0: Bonsoir. Bienvenue. (laughs) (laughs) Cummins
2: Made it to probation. You'll be free soon unlike the prisoners in Manhattan prison. So we are at minute 18. Uh, It starts with Houck still talking on the phone with the vice president, and it ends with Houck talking at his desk with one Mr. Snake Pliskin. So the conversation that we're still in the middle of here with the very calm Bob Houck chatting with the vice president, he tells the VP that moving in to take the island is a last resort. And I know uh, this was brought up in yesterday's minute I believe about how just there's just no way that can possibly work and it couldn't work I mean the second that they would see the choppers the president's dead so it's interesting that Hauck mentions it as a last resort because to me it seems like it, it's it, it shouldn't even be considered as an option at all
1: yeah I mean I I mean this brings up a question to me of what level of occupation these guys have as a force, because the presumption is, is there's millions and millions of people on this island. So how exactly are you going to hold millions and millions of people and figure that all out? You know, like, how are you going to, like, secure that?
2: And, and millions and millions of people who, like Romero was referred to yesterday, are, are feral. Yeah. These are not people who are going to be interested in being tamed. They're going to fight back,
1: right? Because they're also socially conditioned for survival. So I think that makes it a far more deadly and scary prospect for an occupying force.
0: Yeah, it's the the Achilles' heel of this whole design, of of warehousing all the criminals into one tiny, yeah uh offshore location is that if anything happens there you, you there's you don't have any options left um mm-hmm. uh, i assuming that you still are not going to just exterminate everyone right on on that or or that 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 somehow that would be politically costly or or otherwise um off the table that you would just go in guns a-blazing
2: well it's interesting because the the we have we've we've talked a lot about you know, the society that would lead to this prison and, and and some of the rules of the prison and how it, how what people on the outside might think but this hasn't come up yet the so we've got the prison, and once you go in, you can't come out. And they have no problem with killing people who try to escape, as we see with the two raft guys at the beginning of the movie. What we don't, and they clearly don't, they I can't imagine they'd have a problem going in. He says, you know, it would be a last resort taking the, the island, which means it's at least being considered, and that would obviously mean a lot of deaths. We had the narrator, uh, not the narrator, the speaker, voice, when Snake is walking through the hall talking about how you may choose to be terminated and cremated right right away if you don't want to go in the prison but there's nothing in this movie that talks about the death penalty though and it's it's interesting that clearly the prison system has a pretty blasé take on killing the prisoners because it doesn't it's not something that seems to bother anybody yet it doesn't appear to be an actual death penalty, though. So it appears that the criminal justice system is just, if you break a, you know, a certain threshold of a crime, you're sent to Manhattan prison, and that's it. Uh, you know, there, there is no other option. And that's very interesting to have a society that has no death penalty, but also has no problem with killing the prisoners uh, for any different reason.
1: I think that's a brilliant point. That's something I hadn't really, you know, considered to that degree. Because that does, I think there's a natural question of if you're willing to, you know, kill people without too much debate, as you're saying, as we saw with the rafters, why bother with walling people off? You know? Like, it's it's an interesting it's an interesting gray line that they've made about the quality of life and humanity here. And, and I don't know what your guys' interpretation of this is, but I really had a sense with, with Manhattan prison that it was, it was kind of an, a all for all criminality, something even, you know, even a minor infraction from somebody, you know, say, you know, carrying a joint to all the way up to, you know, serial killing, you know, it was like a high crime and
0: everybody's kind of thrown in together.
2: Yeah, we get no clarity on that at all in the movie.
0: Yeah, the premise seems you know where where it's literally typed onto the screen that the crime rate all of a sudden goes up by four hundred percent, right? Right. And it and it seems to imply that um, that there's such a breakdown in law and order that there aren't even trials anymore. That uh, that it's it's it it may be like a kangaroo court system where they bring you in and just say hey look did they find you uh you know uh shoplifting yeah i mean here you know there there's uh evidence that i was shoplifting all right fine you know no trial jury or or anything just um off to manhattan because if we bothered having real trials for everyone um in in this system where there's a 400% spike we would never get we would never finish these trials so i think you're right that that there is it seems like you cross a very low threshold that's somewhere between jaywalking and and uh you know first degree murder <laughs> and uh mm-hmm. and you're you're off to uh manhattan as sort and it's sort of a deterrent maybe it's uh implied as a deterrent to keep people from uh, criminal activity
1: yeah i think that's fair too
2: so then Hauk gets his permission he asks for and gets permission to try a rescue mission and john carpenter had a quote about that he thinks that the film's success was in part aided by the country's desire to see a successful rescue mission after the iran hostage crisis Uh, And that ran from November 79 to January 81. You know, this is what the movie Argo was based on. So with the way that that went down, he thinks that that might have struck a nerve that here was, you know, spoilers here, you know, ultimately the the rescue is a success at the end of the movie. And people liked seeing that in that atmosphere, in that political atmosphere, because this movie came out in the same year that the Iran hostage crisis ended.
0: And was filmed at the sort of peak of frustration with uh, the hostage situation. Uh, This was filmed in 1980.
2: During the uh, election season.
0: Right. Um, And viewers my age and older will remember that the show, the TV show Nightline, started out as a day-by-day recap of where we are in terms of getting our uh diplomatic staff out of Iran ultimately it was well we didn't really make any progress in that um and 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 since you brought it up it's interesting the the fa- there was a failed uh rescue attempt that was um I want to it was special forces of some sort and i i don't remember if it was Um, army rangers or delta force or or one of them but there was an attempt with a very complicated um, helicopter based uh, assault and rescue mission that was planned and it was attempted but it ultimately essentially broke down in the desert in Iran because they were trying to cover thousands of miles of distance. And it's interesting to me that, um, you know, the prominent use of helicopters in this film sort of echoes that, that weird powerlessness that, you know, we had in, in real life in that situation. And oddly enough, the powerlessness that the authorities have in the movie, that they have all these soldiers and all these helicopters, and yet at the end of the day, they know they can't just move in and, and attempt a, a rescue and enma- uh, en masse. They have to rely on an individual to, to um, uh, what's the word? Extricate. Uh, extricate, thank you, yeah. So yeah, it's a it's a little bit of Iran hostage crisis fantasy. Uh, you know, I could totally see that.
2: So there's a an interesting cut scene here that was in the draft script, and it was gone by the time we got to the shooting script. It's after Hauk gets the approval to do the mission, and before the next part of what we see in the movie with Hauk in his in his office waiting for Snake to come in. So. Here's a. Uh, it, it's it's a long scene too, and it's between Snake and a pretty sadistic guard. So I'm I'm gonna read uh, part of this scene here from the. This is from the draft script. So the guard's name is uh, Dugan, D-U-G-G-A-N. So the guard says, "You want to see a priest?" Pliskin doesn't respond. Guard says, "All right, no priest." So we finally caught up with the Snake. Don't slime out on us this time. Here he is, the snake, going into the city. Just one more stop before you leave. You know what it is? Sterilization. They burn you so you're all dried up. No good anymore. No little snakes. Ain't that a shame. Plissken says, I'm not there yet. Dugan says, you're just a kiss away, snake. Lights a cigarette, sees Pliskin staring at the cigarette. Cigarette? Plissken says, yeah. Dugan pulls one from the pack, throws it on the floor several feet in front of snake. He's shackled to the bench, though, so snake can't move. Dugan says, crawl for it. Suddenly the door opens and a trooper walks in. Strip his leg irons. Dugan says, what? Trooper says, priority override. Dugan says, where's he going? The trooper says, hauk. Bunch of troopers come in. uh, Snake's still handcuffed. Dugan's walking next to him. They're walking over. And Dugan then jams the butt of his rifle into Pliskin's side. Pliskin drops. Trooper says, hey. Dugan says, these floors were just waxed. He slipped. They start walking again. Dugan pulls out his pack of cigarettes. Still want to smoke? Smoking doesn't soothe the nerve snake. Makes it worse. Puts you on edge. Dugan suddenly swings his gun butt against Pliskin's leg with a crack. The group stops as Pliskin falls down again. Trooper says, all right, Dugan. Dugan said, he wants a cigarette. Trooper says, don't fuck around. Dugan pulls out a cigarette, sticks it in Pliskin's mouth. I just want to light it for him. Dugan strikes a match, lights the cigarette. Pliskin drags on it, staring at him. Smiles, Pliskin says, a little human compassion. Then suddenly Pliskin brings his knee up and drives it into Dugan's groin. Dugan instantly doubles over. Pliskin sn- swings his knee up again, connects with Dugan's forehead. Dugan flops down to the floor. The troopers push Pliskin against the wall. Pliskin says, these floors were just waxed. The troopers stare at him coldly. Finally, Plissken is pushed forward. The trooper says, let's go. Another trooper says, what about Dugan? Trooper says, I said, let's go. Pliskin turns and looks back at Dugan's body. And then they, and then they bring him to Hawke's office.
0: You know, I can see why that was cut.
2: Yeah, it doesn't really add anything. No,
0: what, was it filmed or was it just written but not, no, filmed?
2: not filmed? No, not filmed. It was, okay. it was in the first draft script. It was not filmed.
0: It, so do, it does a little bit of world building, but, um, but yeah, I'm okay with that not being in the film.
2: Yeah, yeah. I mean, we, we get that Snake's a badass from other parts of the movie, so we don't need it for that. Um, this guard, Dugan, is not seen before or since, so his you know there's no really purpose to him being there. The only real, you know, there's the thing about the sterilization, which really is not an important plot point, you know. It, it's, you know, okay, oh, that's how come there's no kids or babies in the prison, everyone's sterilized. I mean, it's, you know, it's an interesting little tidbit, but it doesn't really affect the movie.
1: Yeah, and I I think it takes a while to kind of get to the punchline, you know. And, and and I see that they were trying to set it up for him to appear to be a badass, and they were trying to show here's the the cruelty of of, of the keepers of the zoo, so to speak. But it, it's an un and you know we we kind of know this, but it's it's an unnecessary expression. You know, I I think him being walked through the halls and everybody kind of staring at him kind of does that. And I think that this minute and the next minute after actually set up enough about Snake being a badass that um, we don't necessarily need to see him beaten up before he gets into the room.
2: And so they bring him into Hauk's office. Hauk is checking a gun, which uh, is a Smith & Wesson Model 10 snub nose revolver. And for those of us people who don't know a thing about guns, a snub means a short barrel, usually three inches long or less. And this is a gun. This is a type of gun that is very popular. It's used in a lot of movies and TV shows. It's the gun that Michael uses to kill Salazzo and McCluskey in The Godfather. It's the gun that Silk Spectre shoots uh, uh, Ozymandias with in Watchmen. It was, in, it was even in It's a Wonderful Life. It was in Shaft. It was in Superfly. So this is a very popular model of gun in pop culture.
0: Take the gun, leave the cannoli.
2: (laughs) That's it. That is (laughs) the gun.
1: (laughs) Yeah, the Smith and Wesson Model Tens. There's about six million of the type of them have been produced over the years. Um, It is the most popular handgun of the 20th century, and of course, it has many variants, of which the snub nose is one of them. They started making the snub nose in 1936. So it's a it's an oldie but
0: a goodie it's weird that the cut from the previous scene where we see halk like sort of reclining in his chair and taking the call from the vice president which I'm mentally uh equating uh Dan quayle um and then it and then it jump cuts to him with the gun uh, it, it's just weird to see like. Same person, different location, doing something different uh, from what one cut to the next. That's why I asked if um, that uh, sort of omitted scene was filmed or not. It was because that would make a lot more sense if they had filmed that and and it was uh, in the original cut of the film, and then they jump cut to or, or and then they cut from there to Hulk sitting at his desk, checking the gun. It's a very abrupt transition uh, to have the same character, you know, doing that in his office uh, when we just saw him sitting in another office uh, in the last scene. And it's also very strange to, I, I wrote down in my notes, it's very disturbing to see anyone sitting in an office looking at a gun. It's like too, It's like an object that doesn't belong in that environment. It's, just, uh, it's unsettling.
2: Yeah, the shooting script, and so I don't know if this was filmed or not. It's in the shooting script, but whether or not that means it was actually filmed, I don't know. There's a very brief scene separate from the long guard scene from the draft script. This is now the shooting script that shows Hauk speaking with the doctor, who in the movie we have not met yet... We meet him in a very brief conversation between ha- him and Hauk. And so shooting script wise, that would have been in between these two shots of Hauk. I don't know if they filmed it or not, though.
0: Yeah, it definitely feels like something would go between the two shots originally. Yeah. Um, but then that we just get that abrupt transition otherwise.
1: This is the most masculine office I have ever seen. I mean, yes, yes. The the old school weapons, the brown leather chair with the rivets, the the lamp that he's got in the background, everything is brown. There's just, this is the most mahogany-laden, this is just the, I, I mean, it's just, it's the most... Nutsack space that I've like seen in a, in a movie in a while. So, but it makes sense because this is this is Haukland, and Haukland is a is a mighty masculine space. So, I, I think that in, in terms of a, another character, the set dressing in this minute is amazing because I feel like again it gives a, a silent but strong cue about who Bob Hauk is,
0: and it's all shadows. They're just. Yeah you can't see the ceiling um and and you know as we'll find out uh, later in this minute everyone who comes into this office emerges from shadow
2: oh that is such a great i love that they show that that they cut to snake standing there and you can't see the upper half of his body it's such a cool shot
0: and and it's so rooted in tropes that we already know you know that that's such a noir thing um uh, my favorite um, uh, example of this, and it's something that was brought up on a fellow movie by minute podcast. Uh, that would be the Indiana Jones Minute when they talk about how uh, Indiana Jones, you know, our introduction to him. We almost think he's a bad guy because he emerges from shadow. And and I remember um, watching Escape from New York for the first time. And I was like, I thought. Snake was a bad guy because of the way he came into the room, you know, out of out of shadow. But yeah, I'm I'm thinking this might be the model for I'm I'm building a podcast studio at my house, and I'm thinking uh, maybe go the ex- I'm thinking of going the exact opposite of of this uh, of Hulk's office. Yeah, I'm not sure what that is yet, but lots of doilies. I don't know.
2: <laughs> <laughs> well you say you know how with the introduction here and you know is it a villain is it a hero and the guards say to Hauk he's dangerous sir and you know Hauk says oh you know it's it's okay and it's just interesting the, the it's dangerous sir to me is just a bit of a Captain Obvious comment you know I, I mean Hauk obviously knows who he is Hauk has personally asked for him to come to his office he is someone who has been sent to New York prison. He's in the shackles. I mean, uh, okay, you know. Thanks, dude. Thank thank you for telling me that. You know, I, I wasn't aware he was dangerous.
1: <laughs> but he's kind of nice about it, and he kind of has this kind of half smile. He's like, "I know, I'll be okay. It's <laughs> <laughs> gonna be cool." Do you not know who I am? It's cool. So it's almost like he's he's taking the you know he he's acknowledging the empathy of someone being concerned on his behalf.
2: So Snake comes in, he makes himself at home in the nice big leather chair, and the first thing he does, he thinks Houck's gonna take off his handcuffs. I don't think so, Snake.
1: I just love how there's, like, five dudes here, you know, walking Snake in. So secondarily to him being obscured, you know, basically from the waist up, uh, this is another cue that he's, a, he's dangerous and that you've got so many guys who are, like, literally, like, clown cart into the doorway before how gives them the, you know, the go-by there.
2: Yeah, it's like when Hannibal Lecter's strapped to the thing and he's got the mask on his face, but there's still several guards pushing the cart that he's on.
1: Yes, yes, exactly.
2: So how calls him Plissken, and we hear Snake speak for the first time, and his first words are, call me Snake. And if if you're wondering why Snake sounds like that, and if he sounds familiar... Uh, Kurt Russell had the idea to make him sound like Clint Eastwood, and Jarden Carpenter said, absolutely go with it. Perfect voice for this character.
0: And he's acting, uh, against Lee Van Cleef from all of the, uh, man with no name, you know, the, the good, the bad, and the ugly for yep. fistful of dollars for a few dollars more. So it's like a little weird, uh, essential reunion between, um, you know, Clint Eastwood's character in those films and uh, Lee Van Cleef, who, yeah. even though Lee Van Cleef plays two different characters in those films, they're essentially the same. Uh, so, the, you know, for, for viewers of a certain age who remember those films, um, this all feels familiar without being obvious. I do love that Bob Hawke has to put on reading glasses here.
1: <laughs> I think that's kind of interesting. I mean, it, it gives this, uh, I, don't know, I think it's an interesting choice, you know? Because on one hand, I'm like, oh, wow, yeah, because you're of a certain age. And, you know, the folks who, you know, of a certain age will need to get reading glasses. So I think it's interesting that he, this this is an interesting little touch that they've added here.
2: And he says, S.D. Pliskin." So I did a lot of Googling and I have absolutely no idea what the hell SD stands for. But the character's name, according to the internet and the various websites, is it's Robert Pliskin. I don't know where SD comes from, from the Robert. Um, Unfortunately, unless we can, you know, maybe get John Carpenter on the show one day, we may never get that answer.
0: I'm trying to think of the most non-badass combination of s and d that i could come up with but i'm i'm afraid i would like offend our our listeners who happen to share and uh, you know the the same name
2: is the first word soft
0: <laughs> <laughs> like simon wow what would be the d dwight plus dwight, <laughs> dwight. <laughs> all, right, all people
2: named Simon and Dwight, please direct your hate mail to Chris. <laughs> at uh, two thousand one podcast, he is, podcast not, he on is only Twitter. a guest. He is not officially officiated with uh, uh, connect the show. He is a guest, <laughs> and he, he he is done after this minute. So please send all hate mail to him.
1: I'm gonna go with Sherman Dwight.
2: See, I, I about something like that ends it like like a, a Stevie or a Stewie, something where you're taking a name but putting that e at the end of it. You know?
0: Oh. Scooter Dwayne. S-
2: Scooter!
1: it's <laughs> <That's> awesome. <laughs>
2: now I'm thinking of SD Jones, who was a WWF wrestler when I was a kid, and the SD stood for Special Delivery.
0: Man, I don't remember that guy.
2: He, he wasn't one of the major ones.
0: Oh, okay. He was a minor league wrestler, much like Kurt Russell was a minor league baseball player with the... Portland Mavericks.
2: Well, mm. well-segued, Chris. Thank you.
0: <laughs> I host a podcast, too, you know.
2: <laughs> uh, we got um, a couple of interesting, you know, you, you see movies and, and they're, they get released into their countries and they have to be dubbed over. And sometimes titles of movies are changed. Names of, of characters are changed to fit local cultures. And doing some research here, found a couple of interesting ones. Snake was not snake in every single language. South Korea, they made him cobra, which, okay, all right, a cobra's a type of snake. But my favorite is in Italy, for some reason, snake was renamed hyena.
1: (laughs) That's pretty cool. I can get behind hyena.
2: Well, I don't know Italian, so I'm I'm not going to even try to guess how that came about.
0: Hyenas are scary in packs, but I've never heard of, like, a single hyena. As a scary animal,
2: <laughs> well, they're most known for their laugh. I mean, they're not, you know, I don't. I mean, if I'm going to think of a giant cat that's going to scare me, I'm going to go with the lion, the tiger, the cheetah. I'm not thinking of the hyena.
0: It's a it's a weird choice.
2: Maybe, maybe and I, any any fans, uh, any listeners who are fluent in Italian, please let us know in the Facebook group or on Twitter. Is there something special about the hyena in the Italian culture that we're not aware of?
0: I mean, Wolf Wolf Pliskin sounds really cool.
1: Yeah, it does. I don't know, man. I think I like Hyena. Uh, in Italian, it's Hyena. Uh, Hyena. So I don't. I, that doesn't sound any sexier to me. Uh, but uh, I, I. I don't know. Like Hyena has kind of like a like a spy code name kind of feel to it. So I, I, I dig it for that reason.
0: What a what a what a great introduction to the character this is uh f- for for Snake Plissken. I envy the the next guest guest that you will have on the show.
1: Well cool. Chris, uh thank you for joining us this week. Uh one more time, can you uh um yeah, you've been a pleasure. Um one more time, can you tell us where we can find you out in podcast world?
0: My little Movie by Minute podcast which is uh Covering Stanley Kubrick's 1968 science fiction masterpiece, 2001 A Space Odyssey, is called Open the Podcast Doors, Hal. We are currently uh, in the uh, break between the end of the Discovery Jupiter mission and all of the psychedelic nonsense that occurs afterwards. And maybe by the time you hear this, we might be starting that section of the film. But if not, this is a good opportunity to get caught up on all those episodes. And we're on Instagram uh, at Open the Podcast Doors Hal, and on Twitter at Two Thousand One Podcast. And we also have a listeners group at on Facebook, rather at uh, it's called Space Station Five. And we also have a playlist of music on Spotify called Frank Poole's High Energy Workout Mix. So check that out.
1: Well, thank you again, Chris, for joining us this week. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter at NY Minute Pod, also the Facebook group Brains Library, the Escape from New York Minute Hangout. And uh, I wanted to give a little uh, shout out here to Brad Mendenhall, who is our strong yet silent producer. Uh, who makes the magic um, in our edits and is a wonderful organizer of this podcast and very much appreciate it. So um, thanks be to Brad. And with that, be on time, stay out of the sewers, and we will meet you on the other side of the wall.